All right. Can casually take our seats back. It feels like it just got cold and rainy outside, doesn't it? Like the, the whole mood of the peninsula shifts as soon as the fog sets in. You notice that all of a sudden it's like pumpkin spice season for some of you. Others of us think of like warm fireplaces and hunting, but you know, to each their own, however you would like to do that. Um, well, we are starting a new sermon series today. Uh, we're going to go through Philippians chapter one for a little while, and then we'll take a break, and then you wouldn't believe what we'll go through next. Philippians chapter two. I know it's very exciting. You would hardly imagine that we would do that, right? And so uh, Philippians is an excellent, excellent book. Uh, it's got so much joy and excitement and gratitude and rejoicing. Uh, I find it to be one of the most encouraging books in the entire New Testament. And so I'm hoping that this results in a season of encouragement for us. It also has some very important challenges and concepts for our faith in Jesus and following him well. Uh, going along with this next three weeks, I, uh, we put together this journal here. It's called Thank You, Lord. It's a 21-day course in gratefulness. Uh, they're out there on a round table on your way out. I would encourage you to grab one if you're a journaler or if you feel the Lord nudge you. You know, some of us, we're not really great at journaling, uh, and yet sometimes taking time to think and write down our thoughts, even if it's just for three weeks, can be a real blessing. And so maybe the Lord is uh, wanting to stretch you and bless you kind of out of your comfort zone, if that's you. Good for you for getting after it. I tend to fall in that category. Uh, I don't like to sit down and take time to write down my thoughts every day, but I occasionally journal. So uh, I'm looking forward to going through this with you, uh, and it'll become clear the benefit of that in just a little while. Uh, but before we get into the word all the way, let's just take a moment and pray for God's blessing on our time of learning. Uh, Lord, thank you for our church family here. Thank you for blessing each of them, for calling them to know you, for drawing them into you. God, thank you that you've made yourself so available to us. You sent your son to this earth so that people could tangibly see and feel your love. We thank you that he is the best expression of who you are to us. We ask God that in this sermon series on gratefulness, that more and more that our hearts would be connected to this one who is love embodied, that we would know the resurrected Christ, the fellowship that he has with us in our suffering, the power of his love, and the power of the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead that is also in us. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude to overflowing in this time. Thank you for the abundance of truth in your written word about gratitude. Would this word gratitude be written on our hearts? Would it be a lens that we see the world through, Father, so that we would become a people who don't just have gratitude, but instead walk in gratefulness in all the seasons that we go through? Father, would my words be pleasing to you? Would I be on focus, Lord, and, uh, and on point as we go through the texts today? pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're in Philippians 1. We're talking about gratitude. So kind of three things, if we could talk through this whole thing. If you would grasp that you can sow gratitude in your life, that you actually have a choice, that just like a farmer uh, sows seeds in his field, you can sow gratitude into your life. And that the more that you do that, uh, you start to grow gratefulness. So think of it like this way. When you plant a sunflower seed in the ground, what do you get? You get a, a sunflower, right? Well, when you plant gratitude in the ground, you don't, don't just get gratitude, you get the flower of gratitude, and that is gratefulness. And amazingly, the more you do that, eventually you begin to harvest joy, which is an awesome, awesome blessing and a privilege that I think that we have as followers of Christ uh, above all 
other people on this earth. And I, I don't mean to boast in that, I just mean that we have constant reason to rejoice in the Lord and that the joy that is available to us is a greater joy and an eternal joy, a hope that is unfading that we have in heaven, a savior that we're awaiting and a life that is better than we can ever imagine. And so we march forward into victory even when we on this side of heaven feel like we are perishing. And so the message today is entitled, I Choose Gratitude. I choose gratitude. And I'll tell you this on the way in. I think that gratitude gets short shrift in the Christian life. I think that often gratitude gets relegated to, you know, like super Christians who like to show up to Sunday evening Bible study, even though they were at church in the morning, who uh, wake up at five in the morning and wash their hands and cleanse their hearts and, and pray extra hard so that everybody else's day goes well. You know, Christians who memorize the Bible, uh, Christians who sweep the church when no one is looking and show up to extra Bible studies throughout the week, you know, those super Christians. But the reality is that this is like the exercise of Christian faith. You know, people talk about like, I want to get healthy, and I know what a gym membership is for, and they say that exercise is healthy, but there's got to be a better way, right? Because exercise is hard, and it, it takes devotion and work, and, and what's crazy is, is gratitude is really similar to that. And the more gratitude we have, the stronger our faith is, but we'll, we'll talk about that more in just a minute. We're going to look at Philippians 1, uh, 1 through 6, and we're going to launch into the theme of gratitude from there. So Philippians 1, 1 through 6 says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So Paul is identifying himself and the one who's carrying the letter, and he's referring to them in some really powerful ways. First, he's saying that we ourselves, Paul and Timothy, we're servants of Christ. That's the word doulos, and it's like a bond slave out of love. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week as it's a major theme in Paul's life, and I think that stems from gratitude. Uh, he's saying this is to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now, if you don't know it, to be called a saint is a unique privilege that only one group of people on the whole earth can be called, and that group of people is everyone who has put their faith in Christ Jesus. See, the Bible says that once you put your faith in Christ Jesus, then God takes you out of the world spiritually and existentially, and he places you in Christ, and he sets you apart from the rest of the world, and he says these people are special, and these people are important, and they have a purpose and a value that's beyond compare, and I'm saving them for eternity. And so God puts his claim on you at that moment when you put your faith in Christ. Any Toy Story fans out there? I love that movie. It's a great movie. What does Woody have written on the bottom of his foot? Andy. Andy put his mark on Woody. Andy says, Woody is mine. I've taken Woody out of all of the rest of the toys, and I put my name on his foot, and he will always be my Woody, and I will always be his Andy. And this is how it works in Christ. That when you put your faith in Christ, Christ puts his name on you. You become one of his you are his brother, you are his sister, you are part of his family. He is committed to you. His name is written on you in permanent spiritual marker. You can't rub it off, you can't wash it off, you can't sand it off, you can't sin it off. It's on you forever, and you are his for eternity. And so when Paul wrote to the saints at Philippi, they knew this teaching well. It was pressed into their brains. It was embossed into their souls. So when he said, you are the hagios, you are the holy ones of God, it would have been like grandma's cookies coming out of the oven. Oh, that's right. God's so good, right? And so we should read it in the same way. 
that God calls us saints, that there's a, a special place that we have. There's a holy aroma that arises when we read that. It's nourishing to our souls when we reflect on the love of Christ for us, that he would claim us so powerfully and so permanently and so lovingly to be his own. And Paul wants to make sure that the overseers and deacons know that this is to them too. Because sometimes I think people who are in positions of leadership, they don't take, they don't receive, they don't grab a hold of, they exclude themselves. And Paul's saying, even you, this is to you as well. And then he says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a, a gentle opening with kindness. All of God's goodness and love to you. All of God's favor and power of salvation to you. And would that bring you heart peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we've really dispensed uh, formal greetings in our culture. In fact, I'm guessing that the last time you were greeted formally was like by a telemarketer. You know, you get that phone call and then there's like the strange on the line and then the person on the other end might have an accent, might not, and they go into this spiel and there's usually way too much formality, right? Like, I hope you're having an amazing day today, Mr. Garrison, and that your family is all well. How are you today? And I'm like, you, you don't even know me, and you're talking about my family like this. Uh, yeah, we're good. Thank you. What do you want to sell me, right? Uh, Paul's not trying to sell us anything. He's, again, reminding us of the powerful privilege and position that we're in and that we have a unique place in history and unique benefits are towards us that you can't get anywhere else, like God's favor and God's peace because you have salvation through your faith. And then Paul says this, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Now that, that we're there for, right, I give, God, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance is also kind of upon, or every time I remember you, my heart is filled with thanksgiving. And I always pray with joy for all of you in my every prayer for you. Paul is saying, man, God loves you. And he has placed a massive love for you in my heart. And every time I think of you, oh, it's amazing. It's the best. You are just such a powerful source of joy in my life. So that when I think of you, I find this eternal happiness, this place of bliss inside. What an awesome relationship Paul is describing with these people. Do you have people in your life like that? You see their picture on your phone and you're like, them. They are one of my thems. They are part of my home. I'm glad they're in my life. I hope you do. We need that. I hope that you're open to that circle growing because that's God's design for the church family, that we would have that level of unity and love in our midst so that the name of Jesus would be made great just because we hang out together, just because we're connected to each other. I remember when I wasn't a Christian, I started going to a Christian college, and there were these groups of guys, and they would get together, and they would play Ultimate Frisbee on Friday night, and that's my jam. I love Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, the rest of the sports are okay, but Ultimate is where it's at in my heart. I don't know why. I know that makes me quirky, nerdy, and white, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I love Ultimate Frisbee, and so I went with them, and I played Ultimate Frisbee on Friday night, and there was this strange thing that was missing. Ego. There was no ego. These guys were all lifting each other up. 
guys were scoring amazing touchdowns. And they'd be like, that was the best pass ever. They did like three handsprings and a backflip over the defender. And they were like, if that pass wasn't there, that could never have happened. I would have just been flipping out into space, right? And so they were always building each other up. And they loved each other so much. And they looked out for each other. And I left that night and I was like, man, how does a guy get friends like that? I, I, there's people that I knew my whole life that didn't love me and I didn't love them the way that these guys loved each other and they just met last year at college, right? And I was like, where does that come from? So I asked one of them, he goes, man, it's because we're all brothers in Christ. Because we have so much common in him that we can share so much with each other, this fellowship that we have spiritually, that we can build each other up in love. And it was like, my mind was blown. I was like, how does that much love exist just between dudes on Friday night, right? Unashamedly loving each other and building each other up. It was a witness to me. May your love, church family of one another, be like this to the community around us so that your very lives are salt and light to them because your love shows them the goodness of Jesus and purifies their hearts by showing them what is good. That is the opportunity of love in our midst. And that is an amazing thing to be grateful for. And this is why Paul always remembers them with thanksgiving. And he says, this is because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, what's united us is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have been partners in spreading this good news since the first day until now. You know, human beings, you need a common source of connection. You need a place of commonality with others. In fact, humans tend to separate into clusters based on commonality. Have you ever noticed that it's really easy to get groups of women together over like crafts, right? It's commonality there. If we have like men's crafting Saturday, do you know who's going to show up? Me neither. I don't. There's no guy I know who's like, I just made the best cards on Tuesday, Chris. Wait till you see them. I open it up and a chainsaw pops out. It's amazing, right? We have like, I know, the chainsaw. It got you, right? But that's because it was a chainsaw, not a card, right? If we had a class on like chainsawing and Blaine was leading it, we'd have like 74 guys. We'd give out pounds of sawdust and guys would be like sprinkling it around their shops. It's saw day, it's saw day. You know, because there's this commonality, this connection that's there. And Paul is saying, I have this connection with you because of Christ. And it's the deepest and most powerful connection there is. And so Paul kicks off this book of Philippians with joy and rejoicing and gratitude. Primarily first to God because of his favor for us, but then also gratitude to the people that he's writing to. It's a really big start to a letter, but I have to be honest, most of us are just a, a little bit skeptical and cynical, right? I mean, I know that I can be. And so we need to ask ourselves, is gratitude really that important? Does gratitude really matter that much? Now, I just spilled the beans a little bit on the way in, and I, I think that it does, but truth be told, gratitude tends to get relegated to a, a day of the year where we eat turkey, to which I say, no thank you, because turkey is turkey, right? And, and there's much better meat out there. And then, nonetheless, that's not what the sermon is about. We tend to make gratitude a season. Turkey lovers, I love you. We just can't have fellowship over that, okay? Uh, there's just this time of gratitude, and, and I can't help but reflect that the season of gratitude flows right into a season of getting, because it goes right into Christmas. And while we know it's better to give than receive, we also really like receiving a lot, and we hope that there's some really awesome presents under the tree with our name on them. 
And so we tend to overlook gratitude and we tend to declare that it's not that important. But I want to tell you both about the power of gratitude and the power of ingratitude. So if you're a believer and you don't have gratitude, you're trying to endure in faith. So without gratitude, those enduring in faith lose their reason to persevere. And faith becomes a hollow and dead religion. So without gratitude, in seasons where you are going to have to endure, persevere in faith because of hardship that you're in, your faith eventually will lose its reason for existence and it will become a hollow and dead religion. Gratitude propels you forward in seasons of hardship. Sometimes seasons of hardship last far too long. Whenever hardship comes, I'm like, how about two weeks, Lord? Just two weeks of hardship. That's about my capacity. After that, I'm ready to go back to vacation land where I live in America and everything is really good all the time, right? Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. You know, you go to the doctor and you get a serious diagnosis and he's like, good news, you take this happy pill for two weeks, your cancer's gone. You inject this medicine for 14 days, your cholesterol is perfect and you'll never have a heart problem, right? Good news, uh, you stare in a bright light for 14 days, your depression is poof, it's disappeared, right? It doesn't work that way. For some reason, hardship is hard for a long time. And so we need something to carry us through. And that thing is gratitude. Without gratitude, those trying to maintain and exude love, which I think is something that every Christian wants to do if they think about it, they get stuck as they experience the hard crashes of disappointment and disillusionment. Do you know what that is? That is a lack of reciprocity. Have you ever been loving someone really well and then they're just like, no thanks. They just turn it off on you. They, they sin against you. They gossip about you. They, they tell somebody else, this guy's so crazy. He's just trying to spend all his time with me and I, I don't need another friend, right? And then, the, then you hear that through the grapevine and you're like, wow, you know, I was just trying to build them up in Christ and then here they are telling somebody else that I'm a loser. You know, that, that hurts a lot. And often in our church families, because we don't have gratitude, those moments that sting and those perceptions that things aren't being returned back to us that we've given result in the crashes of disappointment and disillusionment, and we abandon our pursuit of the perfect love of Christ in us and through us. Without gratitude, sacrificial giving loses all joy in the face of a growing martyr complex. You know what a martyr complex is, right? It's me. I have to save everybody. I have to do this again. I have to do this for you. And at the beginning, that martyr complex feels really good. Look what I'm doing for everybody. I'm carrying this church on my shoulders. If it wasn't for me, there'd never be coffee on Sundays. If it wasn't for me, these people would be lost financially. If it wasn't for my preaching, you guys would be hopeless. Ha! Just kidding. I don't think that at all. You have hope in Christ. The problem is, is when we give sacrificially without gratitude, we lose joy, and we can get that way. And our giving doesn't become a gift at all. It becomes odious and offensive because we think we're so much more important than not just the people we're giving to, but even the Savior who saved them. Beyond the symptoms of ingratitude, and just maybe think to yourself, do I find myself ever on this list? Include fretting, complaining, grumbling. I'm just voting for me, by the way. Grumbling. Uh, depression, fear, anxiety, sleeplessness, emptiness, burnout, and resenting. Do you see yourself on there? Do you want those things to decrease? I know I do, not just for me, but for you. Long-term impacts of ingratitude increased health risk, just in general, poor health in general. It's really wild. 
It's weird. Read the statistics on it. You can look up on the line. People who tend to focus on negative thoughts have poor health increasingly over time. There's a positive, a plus, next to heart events. That means increase in cardiac-related disease and heart attacks. Wow, sign me up for that. Inflammation through your whole body. Mm. When you have ingratitude, you tend to be more inflamed as a human being. Everybody knows that about you, but you might not know that. Not only that, you get to see your doctor more. Now, I like my doctor, but I don't like paying my copay, and I certainly don't like meeting my out-of-pocket deductible or whatever that is before I get to start getting insurance covering things. Not only that, I'd rather see my doctor on the golf course or over lunch than in the doctor's office. Over lunch, he never tells me the cheeseburger's too much. In the doctor's office, well, that's a different story. Not only that, there's increased anxiety, fear, and depression. There's decreased ability to cope with the difficulties that come in life, big and small, and there's a decrease in problem solving. And the worst thing is, is you always feel those things when it's hardest, right? You always feel those things when it's hardest. Well, let's talk about the long-term impacts of gratitude. Let's have some good news, right? Less inflammation in your whole body. Isn't that wild? If you practice gratitude, your body starts to feel better. Huh, who knew? There's a decreased heart event risk. So if you're a positive person with a lot of gratitude, your heart is better. Your heart is unbroken. You have less symptoms of diseases when you're sick. Isn't that weird? Have you ever met a couple that one of them has this indomitable spirit and they get sick? And they're like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. It's just the swine flu and flesh-eating bacteria. I didn't need that lower half of my arm anyways. I'm going to be okay, right? It feels nice. And then there's the spouse and they're like, if a cold, right and they're yeah like yeah exactly they're like dead like tiniest illness and they're like i can't move today <laughs> now we know why right i love you just if that's you i'm just saying it happens not only that but with gratitude there's an increased sense of pleasure in your life happiness hope and well-being there's a reason for this. It's because God designed you for gratitude. And when you choose gratitude, the part of your brain that makes feelings of pleasure and happiness, that's right, your brain makes feelings of pleasure and happiness. God designed your brain that way. I've heard psychologists say that your brain is actually designed to produce happiness. Now, some of us whose brains don't do that so well, we're like, well, what gives? Well, I don't know, but I know that overall, a healthy human brain is designed to produce happiness. And when you choose gratitude, you are empowering, you are feeding that part of the brain with more blood flow and more activity, and it gets stronger over time. Wow, isn't God good? Maybe that's why the psalm says that there are pleasures in his right hand for us forever. Because when we hook up with God and we choose gratitude, what does our brain start to experience? Pleasures forever. Exactly. It's like the big woohoo of life. I appreciate that. Thank you. Not only that, there's an increase in learning. There's an increase in your ability to make decisions. That activity center in your brain is very closely related to your happiness and pleasure center. So your brain is a better brain all around when you choose gratitude. Not only that, but your body is a better body. I wish they could make gratitude pills. I really do. Because it'd be so much easier, right? You're having a bad moment. You're like, hang on. Got to pop my gratitude gummy. That's different than the gummies at the dispensary, by the way, right? That's not a gratitude gummy, right? You might feel a little better in that moment, but it's not going to fix you long term. 
let's just say this. When you choose to develop a grateful perspective, you choose to change for good. When you in your life choose to develop a grateful perspective, then you are choosing to change for good. By the way, there's an intentional double entendre there because you're obviously choosing what's good in your life. But what's also clear is that when you develop not just momentary habits of gratitude, but long-term perspective of gratefulness, that it's actually a permanent and lasting change in your life. They've done studies on gratitude and they've asked people to practice gratitude. And one of the wild things is they'll test them later and they'll ask them questions and they'll also take images of their brain and their brain is better in the healthiness, happiness area even six weeks later than it was beforehand because gratitude has a lasting impact on your life. It's powerful. God created this opportunity for every human because he's gracious and good. But you know, you and I as believers, like I said, we have a more powerful access to that source of gratitude that isn't just going to last on earth, but eternally. So let's talk about this a little bit. What is a perspective? Let's analyze this statement, this truth that we just talked about. A perspective is a particular way of viewing or understanding something. A perspective is a particular way of viewing or understanding something. So for instance, anybody like to watch golf? It's okay if you do. Yeah, all right, good, good, good. You know why you like golf? Because you have a good perspective on it. It's a fun game for you, and you understand it, and you've played it before, and you can appreciate the greatness of golf. So when you watch golf, you're part of the 3% of people in our room here that have a good perspective on golf. If we're over at your house, and you invite us to watch replays of the greatest moments in the last three decades of golf history, we're not going to have a good perspective on it. We don't value it in the same way. We have no gratitude for it and all of the greatness of uh, Mickelson and Woods and all of those fantastic people, their greatness is lost on us. The same thing is true for NASCAR, like my friend Earl over here watches, or baseball, like my friend Paul and I watch. You have to have a good perspective on it to enjoy it. Well, you can develop a perspective of gratitude. It's a way of seeing the world. In fact, people fall into one of two perspectives typically. The first perspective is a perspective of coveting. It's a perspective of coveting. And this is a powerful desire to get or consume, often continuously. So when you have a perspective of coveting, you powerfully desire to get or consume, often continuously. Our world, America, is designed to produce this in you. This is the basis for commercial society. I'm not saying this is the basis for capitalism, but this is the basic basis for commercial society because what they're trying to do is they're trying to provoke desire in you for something you don't need so that you would want it incredibly badly. It's just how it is. And you know what? Just as we're made for gratitude, for some reason, we can also be given over to coveting really easily. And coveting grows inside of us. And sometimes this coveting is, I edited this. I'm a very bad editor. I didn't give it to my wife to edit it. Thank you, honey, for making me better next week. Uh, sometimes accompanied by the belief that, is, uh, that more or different will be better. This is the man button, right? So men inherently, if we have one good thing, two of those things is even better. If we have four of those things, that's even better, right? This is why guys like to have four girlfriends when they're teenagers. They're like, if one girlfriend is good, four girlfriends is even better because more is good, right? But ladies, you tend to know that more is not necessarily better, but you can fall into this anyways. Like knitters, how much yarn do you have at home? If you find a good deal at yarn, are you going to pass that up? No way, man, because more yarn is always better. I'm not calling you out. It's good. It's good. Knitting is a good habit. It's okay that you have a yarn hoard as long as you sell it and give it away, according to Steve. 
during the first sermon of the day, which is good, by the way. So we tend to fall into this category naturally. Adam and Eve modeled a covetous perspective. So think about this. They're in the Garden of Eden, which is called the Garden of Delight or Pleasure. Okay, so roll back in your brain. You're young and just married. You're 22. Men, you can lift the whole world. Ladies, you remember how you felt at that period of time? And you're placed in a place where clothes are optional. There's no one else around. Everything is wonderful to eat. You never get sick. The animals come when you call them. They leave when you send them away. The sun on your skin is always warm. The breeze is always perfect. The water is pure and delightful. It's like the best thing in the world, right? It's the perfect place for you. And you're given the perfect job with the perfect partner. But there's one tree in the middle of that garden. And it's weirdly tempting. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you've been given freedom to eat every other fruit in the garden but that one. There's hundreds and hundreds of fruits for you to eat, but you're not supposed to eat that one. And one day, for some reason, you find yourself again lingering around the one thing that you're not supposed to have, and there's this crafty animal there, a serpent. And he starts to speak to you about the fruit. And he starts to cause doubt in your head about the goodness of God and his ability to provide for you. And he says, well, let's just look it up because I'll misquote it. Genesis 3. What does the serpent say? The serpent says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman says, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die No, no, the serpent says, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then there's this transformation in the woman's heart. She moves from satisfaction to covetousness. The woman saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. She wanted it. She wanted to consume it and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who also ate it with her. And this is why we can't have nice things, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) right? Like, they broke it. They messed it up for all of us. Now, rest assured, we would all choose the same thing, ultimately. We would all fall into that covetousness. And so, by nature, we tend to covet things. And that is not the perspective of gratitude or gratefulness. But a perspective of gratitude says this, God is good. He is more than enough for me, meaning he is satisfying to me. David says, as a deer longs for water, Lord, so my soul longs for Budweiser, a comfy chair, to be 33 again. No, for you, Lord, for you, Lord, I am satisfied in him, and he provides for me generously and freely. We could add the word abundantly and expertly. Paul chose a perspective of gratitude. He says, I give thanks to my God upon every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for you in my every prayer. Do you think the Philippian church was perfect? They had everything was going on. They were all that and a bag of chips. They were the only church in town where they were but they weren't perfect, right? In fact, in chapter four, there's evidence of division between some women in the church. Oh, that would never happen in a good church, right? 
Paul seems to gloss over that to focus on this gratitude factor. It's a choice. God has provided for me. I'm satisfied in him. He is looking out for me, and he is the one working in you, Philippian church, so I can rejoice. Jesus modeled the perspective of gratitude. Think about this. You could read this over and over again. This is just one chunk from Jesus' life. In Luke 10, 21, Jesus rejoices. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I thank you, Father. He does this over and over again. You see him. He's feeding the masses. What does he do? He takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he gives thanks. He does this before the Last Supper. He gives thanks. He gives thanks that he's about to be the bread, that his blood is about to be the wine in the cup. He gives thanks. He thanks God all the time for his life and for the good things in it. I'm convinced that Jesus' life was filled with thanksgiving. How else could he be so good to the rotten people around him like the religious people who were constantly pestering him? Not only this, gratitude is a common instruction from God. I just picked one because we don't want to be here all day. It's overwhelming how often the Bible calls us to thanksgiving and praise, calls us to greatness and gratitude, models that for us. And so here's one, Psalm 104. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. There's so many psalms of thanksgiving. You can read psalms where David is desperate for help and in the middle of it he says, but you, O Lord, you, O Lord, I'm thankful for you because you will never let me go, right? Constantly modeling this gratitude. And so, since it's good for you, since it broke the world when there wasn't gratitude, since God wants it for you, what do you think that we should do maybe? We should grow in gratitude. Do you think that might be a good idea? Commercial break. Just saying, okay? Sermon alone isn't going to get it done. It's something that you have to choose. So how do we grow in gratitude? Salvation is the foundation of gratitude for us. Salvation is the foundation of gratitude. I mean, honestly, when you are grateful, it's because you've received a gift. We are grateful for gifts. When we receive things as a gift, we become grateful for them. When we think that we've earned them, we're grateful that we have earned them and we feel good about ourselves. But when we receive a gift that we know we didn't do anything for, we didn't deserve it, it's just here's a gift for you, we become exceptionally grateful. And there's no greater gift than salvation. Jesus, God's perfect sinless son, walked the earth a perfect life and he chose for you to die for you to take your sin upon himself. Not only that, he chose to give his righteousness to you. Can you imagine a better deal in all of history? I cannot. I cannot. You're driving into the car dealership with a busted, rusty 1982 Pinto, and you're walking out with a Ferrari with a bumper-to-bumper warranty and fuel forever, right? You're like, it didn't cost you anything. Guy's like, yeah, man, you can have mine. It's cool. I'll just drive your Pinto until I crash and explode in it. No problem. I'll do that for you. That's Jesus, right? He's doing that for you. And if you put your faith in him, then you have everlasting life. That's the deal. It's an amazing deal. This is why we say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? It was just a gift. And this gift is the foundation of gratitude. In Luke 10, 19 through 20, Jesus says, Look, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. This is every 10-year-old's dream, by the way, right? Like, nothing will harm you. You can do anything you want. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, written in the Lamb's book of life. 
that is probably not underlined and highlighted in your Bible, but you could do that. You could do that. It's an important instruction. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. David prays in Psalm 51, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Do you still have joy and rejoicing in your salvation? Do you still wake up every day and say, I'm not just breathing, I'm alive in Christ? And sometimes I think back to that week that I got saved. I swear I was dancing on the lilies, right? I just like, I was floating across the air. I was like, my God saved me. My sin was taking me to hell and my God saved me. I was alone and destitute and my God has made me rich in Christ Jesus. My future was dubious and I was concerned, but God has given me a future that's better than anything that I can imagine. He's got a place for me in his family. He's given me gifts to work in his fields and my God is so good to me. You could not deflate that balloon. It was unpoppable. I was going everywhere and I was like, it's raining Jesus, hallelujah, right? Like I was just into Jesus so much. You know that season of life? Don't you wish you had that joy every day where you realize the fullness and the power of God's salvation to you? I mean, I've got a friend who's like this and he does weird things. He went to the doctor and his doctor was like, well, you have cancer. And he's like, praise the Lord. And his doctor's like, did you hear me? Do you have a hearing problem too? I just said you have cancer. And he says, and I said, praise the Lord because I know my God will lead to my victory in this. And this is a chance for me to know him more and see his salvation more. My friend got it. I don't know that I would have that same courage in the face of such a significant thing, but this is the joy of our salvation. And we need to go back there and we can pray, good news, we can pray that God would increase the joy of our salvation once again, brothers and sisters. If you're feeling distant from Christ, but you have faith in him, you can ask him to restore you to that place of the joy of your salvation and to give you again a willing spirit, a spirit that's freely going with him because you love him, because you love him. And grow in gratitude. Get to know your generous benefactor, Jesus. Get to know your generous benefactor, Jesus. James says this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, James says, God is always generous. God always gives his best. God always gives good gifts. Jesus says God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked alike. Rain is a gift. Sun is a gift. God gives it to everybody. Some he gives more sunshine too. I don't know why. <laughs> more than others. That's right. We get way more rain, but it's so green here. It's so green here as a result, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from God. So every good thing you have in your life, who's the source of that? God is. Every paycheck you've received, why did you get that paycheck? God set you up to get that paycheck. Every blessing that's come down from others or from your own work ultimately is from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. You know, some of us don't get that though. Some of us forget that and we feel proud. We feel like we have the life that we have earned and the life that we've deserved. Well, let's look what happens when that happens to us. Quickly, look, look in Luke 7, 36 through 49. Luke chapter 7, 36 through 49. I cheated. I put my bookmark there earlier. I'm sorry you didn't get to do that. Luke 7, 36 through 49. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. That's Jesus to eat with him. Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Remember, they, tables were low. They lay on pillows to be at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. 
She bought an alabaster jar of perfume with her sin money, I might add, and stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. Okay, this is a scene, right? I don't know of a culture in the world where this wouldn't be a scene. This is a big deal that someone's wiping their friend's feet with their hair and weeping over them and kissing them. No one kisses feet worldwide. No one kisses feet. Okay, maybe really weird people kiss feet, but uh, the rest of us, we don't kiss feet, right? And really weird people, Jesus loves you too, and we can learn to. It'll be okay. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She is a sinner. You can fill in the blanks there, right? It's pretty obvious at this point in time. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon said, say it, teacher. A creditor has two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously, which means generously and with favor, forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Simon had no gratitude for Jesus. Simon didn't recognize that everything in his life came from the Lord. But this woman, a sinner, was able to understand it. Why? Because she had this foundation of forgiveness in her life because she recognized that the only good thing that she had was Jesus, and that every good thing from that moment on was going to come from Jesus and Jesus alone. She, a woman of ill repute, has amazing eternal repute, doesn't she? She is a woman who was cast out as undeserving in that culture, received more grace than the man who thought he deserved everything and earned it on his own. When we recognize that everything good in our lives comes from God, we can't help but be grateful because we realize how much we've received. But if we're ungrateful, we tend to live in poverty towards the Lord because we're unsure how much he's given. We don't realize how much he has blessed. Grow in a perspective of gratitude. A perspective of gratitude places you in a position to receive. Any football fans in the room? Wide receivers, they run a route, right? And what happens when they run the route right and the quarterback throws the ball right? They make a pass, right? They make a connection, and that connection is yards down the field, and sometimes it's really exciting and explosive when this happens because that wide receiver was in a position to receive. Ladies, do you remember when he was going to call you at home? You know, back when the phone was on the wall and you had to share it with the rest of your family, what did you do when you were waiting to receive? You put yourself in a position to receive. You were by the phone in the chair. Your siblings were approaching the phone. You're like, ah, 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 I'm waiting for a call from Teddy. 
Teddy is supposed to call. You may not use the phone right now, right? You put yourself in a position to receive. Gratitude puts you in a position to receive. We already talked about the fact that God causes the rain and the sunshine to fall on the unrighteous and the righteous. Well, what's the difference? Well, some people have figured out to open up their hands, open up their lives, to recognize that they need to be in a position to receive. Psalm 103 says this, My soul, bless the Lord, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. It's Psalm 103. It's a whole psalm of praise. By the way, overachievers in this commercial break moment, pack it. There's a challenge that you would memorize Psalm 103, which is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's right here in the middle with beautiful ivy on the side to help you grow in grace. Isn't that nice? You can do that, overachievers. I will be trying to join you in that. Spurgeon has some amazing things to say about this psalm. He says, David selects a few of the choicest pearls of divine love. He threads them on the strings of memory and hangs them about the neck of gratitude. Wow. He's got away with words, doesn't he? But think about David's life. Was David's life always a bed of roses? Only if you think about the thorns, right? His sin cost him dearly. He murdered one of his best friends. Think about him as a teenager. He killed a giant. Then the dude went up and grabbed the giant's sword and hacked the giant's head off. That messes a kid up inside. That's all I'm saying. That's not a normal teenager who beheads a giant and then is like, woohoo, dancing in the blood, dancing, right? That's, that's a weird moment in history. It's gruesome. That's going to change a man for a little while. He probably needed the Veterans Together group, right? I'm, I'm just saying. He needed somebody to understand him and care, and, and it matters. But not only that, how much did the sin in his family hurt? It's one thing, it's one thing for you to make mistakes and for it to cost you. But man, when you see your kids sin and you see what it's costing them, man, that chews you up inside like nothing else. Just speaking from experience here, right? My kids are little, their sins are little, but I see their hearts ache when they rebel against the Lord and when they hurt each other and when they take on perspectives that hurt them. And what did David's kids do? Man, he, he had one son force himself on a stepsister. And then the brother of that stepsister murder the son and then rebel and take over the kingdom. Ouch. But what does David do late in his life? He writes a psalm of thanksgiving. He takes that cord of memory and he strings the greatest pearls of divine love on it, love on it and he hangs it on the neck of gratitude. And what does, the, what does the neck do? It turns the head, gives the head perspective. How important is it for us we could see also Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, 3 through 7. Abel gives an offering out of love and thanksgiving to the Lord, and therefore the offering is acceptable. And because it's out of love and thanksgiving, it's also a generous offering to the Lord. But what does Cain do? Cain tips Jesus. He gives Jesus leftovers at the end of it all. He just says, oh yeah, thank you, thank you, Lord. And the Lord doesn't accept his offering. Why not? There's no gratitude in it. There's no love in it. There's only duty in it, and it doesn't work. But what does the Lord tell Cain? Cain, if you just give right, if you just give in the right way, won't you be accepted? Won't you have peace then, is really what the text is getting at for Cain and Abel? We can see that gratitude is such an important part of our lives as we grow. So, if you want to grow in gratitude, choose to change your perspective. 
Choose to change your perspective. Did you know you have that power that you can choose to change your perspective, the way that you look at things? You can reframe things in your head so that you can look at it in a better way. This is a very important thing for us to be able to do. This solves a lot of problems that we have, and we can choose gratitude in our lives. Psalm 121 says this, I will lift my eyes up toward the mountain. Where does my help come from? Answer, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Do you do this when troubles come? Do you lift your eyes up to the mountain and know where your help is coming from? Do you realize that he is the one who's going to save you? Because sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we say words that we shouldn't say in church from the pulpit or things that rhyme like them. Sometimes we curse others and ourselves. Sometimes we grumble and complain. Sometimes we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and decide we have to do it on our own. Sometimes when we see a ghost, we want to call Ghostbusters, not Jesus. And we need to remember that we always need to call Jesus. It's a change in perspective. In Ephesians 5, 13 and 14, Paul is quoting Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. He says this, everything exposed by the light is made visible by Jesus, right? For whatever, uh, for whatever makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Okay, this is not talking about dead people. This is not talking about unsaved people. This is talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are spiritually asleep. They're not awake to Jesus working in their lives. But Paul says this, wake up, change your perspective, invite Jesus in, invite him to show you what gratitude looks like, invite him to change your heart, seek after him, and he will shine his glory on you again. What an awesome thing that we can choose gratitude. So here's the challenge to you. Choose gratitude. Choose gratitude today and every day. Recount the glories of the Lord forget not his benefits. It's going to bring life to your days, and it's going to add days to your life. It's going to fill your heart with goodness and pleasure, and so choose gratitude today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your word calls us to good things. Thank you that you call us out sometimes, Lord, so we can let go of things that are hurting us, that are not helping us. Father, some of us today are stuck in patterns of covetousness. We have decided that the best thing in life is getting stuff, whether it's clothes or encouragement from other people or someone liking a Facebook post or accolades of men or riches or whatever, Father. Lord, would you heal us of our covetousness? Would you help us to let go of that, Father, so that we can hold on to you? Lord, would you move us to a perspective of gratefulness where we see that you are good and that you are satisfying to us because you are more than enough for us, where we see that you provide everything that we need and that we don't have to fear or worry or strive. Help us, Father, to choose gratefulness in this moment now, but not just in this moment, in all moments, Lord. And Father, in those times when we turn back, help us to remember that your mercies are constant that they're new every morning, and that each day is a chance anew to choose gratitude instead of greed. We pray these things in the name of our loving Savior, who gave himself for us out of joy and gratitude to you.